Again, if you're just joining us, thank you for coming. Let me catch you up real fast. We're in our second week of a new sermon series entitled Learning to Pray the Lord's Way. Several weeks ago, really during the summertime, God placed it upon my heart, this burden, both for the church and for myself in midst of studying and preparation, to take a closer look at the Lord's Prayer and see in the most intimate possible way what Jesus has to teach us about true prayer. Last week as we began our journey here through Matthew chapter 6, we just meditated on verse 9 and who God is as our Father. Well, today we're going to move down just one passage or one verse into uh, to verse 10. We're going to be thinking about this idea of calling down God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And I, I want to set the tone for this. I love how God does this so many times in my life. Have you ever noticed this, that what you're learning in Sunday school almost always fits into the sermon, even though nobody planned it that way? God will put an idea on your heart, and somehow God just continues to teach and teach and teach. Well, there's a study that I've been taking our our new young adult ministry through, and one that Bubba Longrier has taken our men through called Gods at War uh, from Kyle Eidelman. And it's amazing how some of the principles that we went through in that first session fit perfectly with what I want to share here this morning. So let me start by setting this whole picture up by asking you a very simple question. And I want everyone to take a deep breath. Here's what I feel like right now. I feel like we're entering into a busy season and everybody's minds is a thousand places, including mine. So let's take a deep breath. Let's slow down. And let's think about where we are in life right now and ask ourselves this question. What has control over your heart today? Right now. What has control over your heart? Kyle Eidelman gives us six questions in in chapter one of that book. Six questions. I want us to ask ourselves these six questions to be able to gauge what has control over our heart this very day. Here's the six questions. What has left you most disappointed right now? This is the big one. For what do you sacrifice your time and your money right now? For what do you worry about right now? Where do you go for comfort right now? What makes you mad right now? What do you dream of right now? And the final one, whose encouragement means the most to you right now? You know, none of those things are bad. It's good to have dreams. It's natural to be disappointed. The gifts of time and money are to be spent on things for God's glory and for our joy. All of that is a gift from God. But if the dominant answer to any one of those questions, if the the predominant response is not God, whatever the dominant response is to any of those questions, that's what has become a God. I really believe this. When you want to talk about a kingdom, and we're going to talk about the kingdom of God, you have to start with the human heart. God cares about the heart because that's where kingdoms are built and kingdoms are destroyed. And if you answered any one of those six questions by something other than God, then that answer is the king that sits on the throne of your heart. And by the way, we all struggle with this. It's not something that we put to death one time. God takes over the throne and he sits there for the rest of our lives. There are gods at war in our hearts every day. 
So as we, as we enter into Matthew chapter 6, verse 10, and we look at this idea of God saying that our king, God's kingdom come and God's will be done, I can't help but see this correlation of our hearts being the kingdom that God is establishing and that ruling that God he wrestles with whoever it is that's trying to take over his throne in our hearts. That's the tone that I want to set as we open up the book and we look at this passage. So here's the big idea in one sentence. When we pray the Lord's way, we continually ask God to reclaim his seat as king on the throne of our hearts. If Jesus is not king on your heart today, we need to go to King Jesus and find out the answer to the problem. So if you have a Bible, please turn with me to the book of Matthew. Okay, first book of the New Testament. Book of Matthew will be in chapter 6. We're going to Again, we're going to read the whole Lord's Prayer. We'll do this every week, but then we're going to pause and really f- reflect on uh, verse number 10. So if you would, if you would stand at this time, out of the reverence of the reading of God's holy, infallible, inerrant word, we are in Matthew chapter 6, and we'll be reading verses 9 through 13. Hear God's word, starting in verse 9. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we love you. We praise you. We thank you for this day. And yet at the same time, Father, we admit that there are other gods who are trying to shove you off the throne that only you belong on. Father, would you speak to us today through your Spirit, using the words of your Son to convict our hearts of what has our hearts. Help us to learn to pray the Lord's way, Father, And saturate this sanctuary with your precious Holy Spirit to convict us, to inform us, to change us from the inside out that we would learn to pray the Lord's way. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So again, if you missed last week, the title of our our message last week was Focusing on Our Father. And we spent almost the entire time just thinking about those two words, Our Father. So now we have a picture of who God is. As we are praying, we see God as Father and Creator. We see Him to be loved and to be feared. They're not contradictory. They are equal. But then we move on a little bit further down, and Jesus is going from who God is to what God wants. And if there's one word, or two words really, that I think would summarize verse 10, I'd say these two words are this. You can write them in your Bible, write them on your bulletin, absolute surrender. Absolute surrender. Those two words encompass this entire verse. And Jesus is saying this should be the pursuit of how we pray every day. So as we look at this idea of absolute surrender, I want to look at three individual areas in this one verse that Jesus is urging us to call down from up above. So the first of the three things that he's leading us to is this. Let's take a better look at the calling for God's kingdom. The calling for God's kingdom. 
the first part of verse 10 says, your kingdom come. Now, we've, we've gone through studies both in Sunday morning and in Sunday night about what the kingdom of God is, but I know a lot of people are coming in and coming out every week. I have found what I think is the most helpful definition because we talk about the kingdom of God, but do we know what it is? Well, the best definition I've ever heard for the kingdom of God comes from a scholar named Graham Goldsworthy who has greatly influenced my thinking over the years. And here's what Graham Goldsworthy says is the kingdom of God. He said it's a threefold concept. The kingdom of God is God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing. For the note takers, I'll say it one more time. The kingdom of God is, number one, God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing. That's the kingdom of God. So let's walk through those three things. First, let's consider who's God's people. Who are the people of God? Well, anytime you think of the people of God, you have to think of repentance and faith. In the Old Testament, the people of God was the called nation of Israel who, through repentance and faith of the coming Messiah, were welcomed into the fold as the people of God. On the other side of the cross, the people of God are Christians, part of the church of Christ, who through repentance and faith in the Messiah who has already come, have now been adopted into the family of God. All right? Old Testament, God chose a nation, brought the Messiah. New Testament, the Messiah lived, died, rose again, and by repentance and faith in him, you are adopted, you are called to be a child of God, and you're God's people in God's kingdom. That's the people of God. What about God's place? Now, this is huge. The location of the kingdom of God right now is spiritual, but one day it's going to be physical. God is establishing the kingdom of God in the born-again hearts of his believers. But one day when Jesus returns and heaven and earth collide, that spiritual reality is going to be a physical reality. It's God's will. In fact, if you've never thought about the kingdom being established in the heart of somebody who's born again, hear the words of Jesus in John chapter 3. In John chapter 3, Nicodemus, one of the few Pharisees who had a, what seemed to be a real born-again heart towards the Lord Jesus Christ, he didn't know what being born again really meant. And he went to Jesus in the dark of the night and he said, how can I be saved? And what did Jesus say in response? Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So this idea of the kingdom of God, right now it's a spiritual reality. But it will one day be a physical one. And right now, I, I do want to say that this, this spiritual reality is manifesting itself in one instrument, and that instrument's the local church. Now, I'm not saying denominationally. I'm saying that the capital C church of all Christians worldwide, that's the instrument that God is using to establish the kingdom before it's consummated at the return of Christ. All right, uh, David Platt in his wonderful book, Radical, says this about establishing the kingdom. He said, the church is God's plan A and there is no plan B. When God decided he was going to establish the kingdom, he decided he was going to do it through a church. What did Jesus say to Peter after Peter confessed him as the Lord, as the Messiah? He said, upon this rock I will build what I call my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. So the kingdom of God is in your heart. God is changing your heart so that he's king on the throne in your heart. All the people who've had those hearts changed are gathered together in what is called the church. And that church will one day, as heaven and earth collide, be a physical reality over all the earth in what's called the new Jerusalem. That's the kingdom of God. God's people 
in God's place. Now, the third part is under God's rule and blessing. If your heart's been changed, do you know how you know that? God's desires start becoming your desires. That's the number one way in which I could point to true evidence of the Spirit of God living inside of you. So when we're calling down the kingdom, when Jesus is saying, your kingdom come and your will be done, he has, I think, an individual and a corporate approach to this. Individually, he's saying, call for God to be the king of your heart. Your kingdom come. Come be the the king of my heart, God. You deserve it because you created me and you bought me with blood shed on a cross at Calvary. That's individual kingdom. But then there's the corporate kingdom. Come and build the church, God. Build the church and establish what will one day be a physical kingdom. Let us see your church grow. That's the calling of the kingdom of God. And Jesus is saying, your kingdom come. When you pray, start by calling this down. God, be the king in my heart. God, establish your kingdom through the church. Come and do and be the king that you are, the king that the world needs to know. Your kingdom come. Now that sounds good and, I, and everyone's excited about that, but then you get to the hard part. Jesus, number one, shows us the calling for God's kingdom. But this is, this is where the rubber meets the road. Number two, let's look at the calling for God's will. This is where you separate the wheat from the chaff. All right, second part of verse 10. He says four words, your will be done. A lot of people love calling out the kingdom of God. But when it comes time to do the will of God, it's a whole different story. I, you know, sometimes I, I keep a notebook in my pocket, and if I just get words that come to my head, I just jot them down. And the other day, I was just, I don't know what I was doing, and this, these words just came to my heart, so I just jotted them down. I just wrote this on a sheet of paper. We can read about the, God's kingdom. We can talk about God's kingdom. We can even sing about God's kingdom. But until we surrender to the will of God, we've not entered the kingdom of God. How do I know I'm part of the kingdom of God? Because I do His will. That's the whole book of James that we just went through the past few months. Faith without works is dead. Now, it doesn't mean we're perfect. It doesn't mean we perfectly do God's will. Only Jesus Christ accomplished that. But our desire is to do His will. Our desire is to to see the things accomplished that He wants accomplished. I had somebody call me recently this week. One of my closest friends for a very long time called me on the phone. He's in the military. And right now he is in South Korea. And he's really growing in his faith. And I know he's growing because he has questions. And, you know, he's been professing Christ for years, but he even said this to me the other day. He said, how do I really know I'm saved? How do I, I mean, how do I know? I, I, I battle this often as a youth pastor at this church because teenagers, I think often they, they put all their faith in a moment when they pray to prayer. And could, it, could they have truly come to faith in that moment? Yes. But could it, could it have been a false conversion? Absolutely. Because it has to do with the changing of the heart. And only God knows that. There's no, there's no magic formula. There's no special incantation. The sinner's prayer does not guarantee salvation if the sinner's heart is not changed. And so how do you know you're saved? Here's what I told him. Do you really believe you're a sinner? I mean, really understand how much you have violated God's holiness. And do you really believe that you've been saved because of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ was enough 
to forgive all your sin? And the third part is, have your desires changed since you became a Christian? Have they changed? You know, think about those questions I asked at the very beginning of this message and look at it in light of our changing desires. Let me, let me re-ask those six questions this way. Actually, there's seven. In case you're note-taking, I'm not trying to throw you off. All right? Take God and put him right into these seven questions. Are you most disappointed with what disappoints God? Do you sacrifice most of your time and money for God's purposes? Do you worry most about how God sees your life? Do you go to God in prayer in his word first to seek comfort? Do you get mad at the unrighteous things that make God mad? Do you dream most of God establishing his kingdom? Are you most encouraged by watching God work in your life and in the lives of others? Now, of all those, I'm going to focus on one because this hurts. And it hurts me as much as it'll hurt anybody else when I share it. I like to use this phrase all the time. This is where I drive up in your driveway and meet you where you live. All right, I'm going to, I'm going to focus on the second one. Do you sacrifice most of your time and money for God's purposes? Because we can say anything about what we believe, but the two things that we have from God to be used for God will tell us if our hearts belong to God. God can take a look at your planner and your checkbook, and he will know right away where your heart is. Bottom line. Your time and your money. Now, here's what I hate about this concept. What I'm going to share with you, some of you may say, well, figures. Of course you're going to say this, Bo. You're pastoring a church. You need people to serve in ministries, and you need money to accomplish certain ministries. And so why not preach on this so that people will will be more involved in the ministry? I'm telling you right now, that is not my motive here. Because anybody who knows me knows I've been speaking about this since the year I was saved. And I'm not asking for the blessings for this ministry. Let me tell you something. When God wants to do something in this church, he'll find somebody to do it. And when he wants a ministry to get done, the bills will get paid, whether you tithe or not. What I want out of this study today is for you to have an intimacy with God that you've never had because you're willing to sacrifice for him in a way that you never did. That's my desire for the people of God in this church today. That's my desire for this church Now, I want to share with you a testimony. I'm not perfect, but I want to share two areas where God has radically changed my life, one with time and one with money. Let me start with time. The single greatest thing that God has done in my heart since I was saved in 2006 about time has been my growing desire to be a part of his church. There is no place on the planet that I would rather be than in the church of God with the people of God worshiping the Son of God. And I'm not saying that for lip service. When I think about Sunday morning, it's not because I'm preaching. I felt this way even as a youth pastor. I felt this way as a Sunday school teacher. I felt this way as a deacon and an intern at the church I came from. My whole week, the pinnacle of my week, is being with the people of God and assembling together to do worship In fact, I I even love the building. 
During the week when no one's here, I just love sitting in this room. You know why? Because when this room was built, the primary purpose for this room, from the carpet to the pews to the pulpit, the number one reason this room is here, it exists for one reason, to worship God. There's nowhere else I'd rather be. There's, there, there's, there's no sunset at Lake Sinclair. There's no crab legs at St. Simon's. There's no football highlights in the SEC. There's no birdies or eagles at Willow Lake. None of that can fill my heart the way this does. And I'm not giving you lip service. This is how I feel about church. And can I tell you why? Let me tell you why. When God met me in 2006, when I got saved, he stepped out of heaven and he stepped into my heart. And not only did he save me eternally, but he also met me at the lowest moment of my life when nobody else was there. I was so alone. I wanted to not exist on the planet. And when I needed God, he was there. And every time I come into church, I see a God who who never left me, who never forsook me. He's always been there. And when I come into church, it reminds me of that every time. And the second reason I love coming into church is the most beautiful picture that you will ever see is this. When people gather together to worship God, they are broken people worshiping a healing God. There's beauty in our brokenness. We are messed up people. We are messy. We're sinful. We're broken. But when we come together to worship God in harmony, in unity, as one person, as one body, it's beautiful. There's nothing like it. And it has changed the way that I spend my time. I know Ashley looked at me like I was crazy the day we got married and we were driving to the hotel that night and I said, we got to get to bed. We're getting up for church in the morning. And I know my Sunday school class thought I was nuts too, but I just, I, I, I didn't want to spend my first day as a married man anywhere else. I love to go visit my sister, but any chance we get, we go to my sister's church. It's Lutheran. It's a great church. We go home and visit my dad. He's got this little Pentecostal church he goes to. Great church. We go to his church. And and primarily, being at those churches makes me yearn to come back to this one. Because this is my home. And you are my family. And this is where I want to be. And God has changed the way I spend my time. That's time. What about money? God did something else in my life in 2007, year after I got saved. It was a weeknight. I was laying in my bed. My mother gave me a book. The book was called You're Broke Because You Want to Be by Larry Burkett. No, it was Larry Wingett. It was Larry Wingett. And uh, I remember thinking, I'm broke because of the situation I'm in. I couldn't help it. No, I began to look. I was making $40,000 a year, and I had $22,000 of credit card debt. I was broke because I wanted to be broke. And I made, I made a decision that year for two things. I made a decision in 2007 that I would never finance anything for the rest of my life. And number two, that I would never for the rest of my life deny God at least 10% of everything I have every month of my life. I made those two promises. And by God's grace, not my righteousness, because I am not righteous and I have goofed up more times than I like to admit, But by God's grace, he's helped me to honor that commitment. I have two credit cards. I use them for gas, and that's pretty much it. I pay the whole balance every month 
I told Ashley, I, you know, we have a, my truck is 15 years old, and it's going to be anxious to see how God provides on this one. Because I got about three or four more years, hopefully, out of that thing. We'll see what happens. But I can tell you this. I will not roll back into that parking lot with a new truck and a huge note attached to it. I won't do it. Because here's what I believe. If God wants me to have it and I'm working hard, doing the best I can to serve him, he will give me what I need. And maybe I don't need what I really want. And then sometimes maybe he gives me more than I need. I can admit that too. Sometimes he gives us our wants. But even if he doesn't, I'm going to trust in his provision. And the second part is, and again, hear me, this is not as a pastor. I do not care what the offering looks like. I don't even know how much we get each month. I don't. I don't. I leave that up to the Larry Haddons and the Janie Sykes who are a lot more gifted in finances than I am. I just, I'm not even going to look at that. I don't have enough time to worry about the money of this church. I worry about the spiritual needs of this church. But I want you to be blessed. And here's what I'm going to say. Back in 2010, in the Guido Bible College, late one night, it was about 10.30, I was leaving class and one of the instructors, who wasn't even my instructor, I had just met him. His name is Terry Clyatt. Terry Clyatt's a pastor in Milledgeville, drives all the way to Metter just to teach on a Thursday night, drives all the way back. And, and Terry Clyatt and I got to talking, and I said, can I confide in you, Brother Terry? I said, I'm between jobs right now. I just left Pineland, and I'm getting an unemployment check, and that unemployment check doesn't even meet all my bills. So how should I tithe 10%? And I'll talk about the word tithe in a second. How do I tithe 10% when the money I already have is still not enough to pay the bills? I'll never forget what he said to me. He looked right at me and he said, Bo, you give on Sunday and you pray till Friday. I will never forget that. And every week, for, for I don't know how many weeks, I put whatever I could put in that offering plate, which was never lower than 10%. And from that Sunday to that Friday, I did not know how God was going to meet my need, but he always did. I never went hungry. I never missed a bill. I constantly experienced God providing for me in the most amazing ways. I, I mean, I could, list ha I could list 10 of them. It's amazing what God did. He didn't make me rich, okay? Unlike the prosperity gospel preachers on TV that tell you to sow that $1,000 seed and experience the blessing of God, amen? That's not what he did. But he met all my needs. And he'll do the same for everyone who is willing to trust him. If you're looking at the situations of your life and says, if I was just in a better spot, then I'd give God my tithe. You'll always find an excuse. There's always, there's always needs. There's always needs. You're always going to be in financial trouble in one shape or the other. Always. But it comes down to trust. That's what it comes down to. Do you trust him and say, no matter what, God, you get the first fruits of what I have. Now, let me say a quick word about tithe, then we're going to move on. Tithe means 10%. And anybody that wants to get in a theological battle, I, I, we have these arguments at seminary. I get it. We do not live under the law. We live under grace. So we, we are not legally obligated to give 10%. There's, there, there's nothing legalistic there. It's not an issue of salvation. It's not a gospel issue. God is not standing there saying, you only gave 8%, you only gave 6%, you didn't give anything. That's not the issue. It's really not. What God wants is a cheerful giver. But God also wants a giver who trusts him, who trusts that he's going to provide for you Monday through Friday so that you can continue to give on Sunday. It's an issue of trust. And for me, I see 10% as my, as my floor and not my ceiling. I know I can't give much more than that right now, but one day I will. 
As God increases my living, he's going to increase my giving, my prayer. But the key really is this. It all comes down to resurrendering our hearts. Johnny Hunt, uh, he, he lights my fire every once in a while, and I heard him the other day say this. If you really want to obey the will of God, you will always find a way. If you don't, you'll always find an excuse. You will find a way or you will find an excuse. I believe that with all my heart. There are things, financial things, spiritual things, right now on my heart, on my mind, that I don't know how God's going to meet this, even a couple days from now. I don't know how God's going to do it. I don't know. But I'm not worried. I'm not. I'm really not worried. And so why am I bringing all this up as we're talking about prayer and, and Jesus calling down the kingdom and saying, your kingdom come and your will be done. What I'm saying is do the will of the God and do the will of the Lord and trust, trust him, trust him, trust him that he will honor you in surrendering to his will. He will honor the heart of those who trust and obey him. It's an issue of resurrender every day. Resurrendering. I mean, just think about Jesus, that prayer. He's saying, he's not saying, this is how I prayed one day. He said, no, this is how you pray. This is the model for how you should go to God continually. After you acknowledge him as father, you pray for his kingdom and you pray for his will. And then when you know his will, you trust it and you obey it. Finally, it moves us on to the third and final part of this passage. Third, let's look at the calling for God's redemption. The calling for God's redemption. Uh, the final part of verse 10 says this, on earth as it is in heaven. On earth as it is in heaven. So when we're calling down the kingdom and we're saying, God, not my will but yours. God, I want you to be the king of my heart, not me. We're saying, God, I want my heart and this world to look like what heaven looks like right now. And think about that definition of kingdom real quickly. God's people, God's place, God's rule and blessing. Now think biblically for one second. I know the casseroles are cooking. All right? Give me just two more minutes. Think back to the book of Genesis, chapter 1, into chapter 3. Think of God establishing his kingdom in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve, God's people, created by God for intimacy with God, in God's place, in the garden where God walked with them in the cool of the day. Under God's rule and blessing, God told them what to do, and what not to do. What happened? They stepped outside of his rule and they therefore lost his blessing. He kicked them out of the garden, put the cherubim at the gates to make sure they couldn't get back in and then God decided to continue to do in heaven what he originally intended to do on earth. Heaven's a place of sinless perfection. Ask Satan. He tried to live there as a sinner and he found out the hard way God ain't going to tolerate that up here and eventually he's not going to tolerate it down here. The Bible says in the book of Revelation, upon the return of Jesus Christ, heaven and earth will collide. The kingdom up there will come to the kingdom down here, and there'll be one kingdom, the new Jerusalem, where we will live forever in a new body on a new earth, and we will not sin ever again. That's the consummation, the completion, the end of the story, the kingdom of God, the final brick laid, the final piece of plaster put up, the final inch of paint painted, completed project, punch list over, consummation, kingdom of God is here. But until that gets here, until that's a physical reality, it's starting right now as a spiritual reality. God wants to be the king of your heart, and he's jealous for it. He will not share his throne with anything else. 
So now we've looked at the calling for God's kingdom, the calling for God's will, and the calling for God's redemption. Let's sum all this up. To sum it up, I'd say this. In order to call down God's kingdom, our hearts must bow down to Christ's lordship in every aspect of our lives. Every aspect of our lives belongs to Jesus Christ as Lord. Every aspect. Much like the Father had every aspect of Jesus' life. If you read the gospel, specifically John, the next time you read the book of John, pay attention to how many times Jesus is obsessed with the will of the Father. In John chapter 4, verse 34, he says, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. John 6, 38, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And then finally in the Garden of Gethsemane, where he said, Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. So how do we do this? How do we do this? Let me be tangible in the last minute we have. How do you do this? Confess. Confess to God everything that is in your heart that doesn't reflect his glory. Whatever God is wrestling with on your heart that is your God, your idol, confess it to God. Confess. Surrender your will. Profess that you want his will and not yours. So we're going to confess, we're going to surrender, and then the final thing is this. If you don't know what to do, all right, the best advice maybe I ever got at seminary, if you don't know what to do, you have big decisions to make two weeks from now. You don't know how you're going to pay your bills. You don't know what job God wants you to have. You don't know where your kids should be going to school. You don't know what you should say to this person who's hurt you. You don't know what to do. Let me tell you this. For the next 24 hours, do the next right thing. For what's, lied, what's laying in front of you today, right now, until you close your eyes tonight, do the next right thing. Speak to people the way Jesus would. Serve others the way Jesus would. Spend time with the Father the way Jesus would. Just for the next 24 hours. And then ask God to help you through the next 24 hours. This, this growth in the Christian life, it's a slow, gradual process. It's a long obedience in the same direction. We're not going to become Jesus overnight. We all struggle with God's will. We all reject God's will. Our hearts belong to other things other than God. But we can be more like Jesus. We can move towards Jesus one day at a time by saying, not my will but yours, and then doing the next right thing. That is how we pray the Lord's way. And as we enter into a time of invitation, there's opportunities for all of us to come and pray. For those who don't know Jesus, you have desires that have never belonged to God, only to you. And you do not know his kingdom because John 3 says, unless a person be born again, they can't see it. They can't taste it. They can't touch it. They can't know what it is to have their heart changed. God says, I want to change it and I will through repentance and faith. Confess that you're a sinner. Believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for the forgiveness of those sins and be willing to trust and obey him and you will be saved and know the kingdom of God. And if you are a Christian and you know that your heart has not belonged to God, whatever it is that's got a hold of it, God loves you, is willing to forgive you and restore whatever it is, but you have to confess it and be willing to, as you get up from the altar, walk away from it and say, I'm leaving it there. I'm leaving it there. God has mercy for you too. We all need this, and that's why we need to know the Lord's prayer in a way maybe that we've never known it before.
Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I beg your forgiveness. Everybody in this room, myself included, Father, for so many things we let creep up on the throne of our hearts that belong only to you, Father. Everyone in this room experiencing that struggle of idol worship in different ways. Father, I know where I'm strong, others are weak, and where others are strong, I'm weak. And so let us be strong together, all ultimately trusting in you, Father. I just, Father, I'm begging you, I'm begging you, Father, just move in this church. Let us experience a movement of the Holy Spirit in a special way where people in this room experience intimacy with you in a way that maybe they haven't in their entire life. Let them sacrifice their time, their money, their heart in a way they've never done in 60 years. Father, I pray for this to take place in this church. I pray for revival to fall upon this church in Jesus' name. Amen.